Hello and welcome to the latest end-of-year edition of the Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and I'm joined for this uh, end-of-year review and forward look by Simon Elliott, Head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. So, Simon, before we uh, look back at the year just gone, let's give us a quick update on where we are at this moment. Obviously, we had no podcast last week, so perhaps you could just give us an indication of where the markets and uh, the investment trust sector is at the moment. Well, the sector has seen the sector average discount narrow in a little bit. Uh, it's probably nearer to 1.5% at present, and that compares with an average over this year nearer to 3 3.5%. And that's not uncommon, to be honest. You often see discounts narrow in as we approach the year end. Obviously, trading volumes are much lower at this time of the year, and I suspect everyone has an eye to their ratings when it comes to the end of the calendar year. Uh, buyback programs will be busy and all the rest of it to ensure people get uh, nice narrow discounts to report to their shareholders when the time comes. Uh, in terms of the markets, well, they've drifted around a little bit, to be perfectly honest. Again, lower trading volumes. Uh, and I think clearly quite a lot to worry about in the wider world. Uh, and that hasn't changed. Okay, so we're going to have to start off by having a quick review of the year as a whole. And then we're going to pick up one or two results that we weren't able to cover last week because there was no podcast. So let's kick off by saying overall, we've talked about um, discounts and so on this year, but let's just talk about uh, where we are in terms of the investment trust sector compared to say where it was two years ago before the pandemic. That's the kind of comparison we normally uh, look at. And since that point in, say, uh, end of December 2019, so two years that included the pandemic, the lockdown and everything else, the investors trust sector has still performed pretty well. Yeah, I think that's a fair comment, actually. I mean, if you look at it in number terms, the investment companies sector, this is in the form of the FTSE All Share Closed End Investments Index. And this basically represents all those investment companies that are constituents of the FTSE All Share. If you look at that bucket of stocks, it's up 33% in that two-year period. In other words, since the start of 2020, that compares to a rise of 7% for the FTSE All Share, so the UK market, so significant outperformance. However, it's worth noting that actually in terms of 2021 year-to-date, and obviously we're recording this on New Year's Eve, so we've still got one final day to go, but the investment company sector has lagged the wider UK market. So investment companies are up nearly about 13%. That compares to a rise of 18.6% for the FTSE All Share. So significant underperformance in this year, but obviously 2020 was a very strong year for the investment company sector, up 18% last year or in 2020, uh, and that compared with a decline of nearly 10% for the FTSE All Share. So there's been a bit of restoring the balance, if you like, We mentioned many times one of the characteristics of the investment trust sector, as represented by this investment trust index at least, is that it is on the whole dominated by different kinds of trusts to the ones that you'll find in the UK uh, all share index. In other words, there's a lot of global companies in there. And there's also uh, a number of specialist alternative asset trusts in there as well. So there's been a bit of kind of mean reversion, I would say. The UK market looks cheap to still looks cheap to a lot of people, but it's looked cheap for quite a long time now. Do you think that we've actually seen a change in sentiment towards the uh, UK market or not? Is there any evidence from the performance of the last uh, 12 months? Yeah, no, it's a good question. I think at the start of 2021, I think there was a lot of 
people who, who really talked up the prospects for UK equities in general. They pointed to the fact that they'd lagged the rest of the world and not just in 2020 and the outbreak of the coronavirus, but really since the time of the EU referendum back in 2016. But uh, at the start of this year, I think there was a lot of talk that uh, UK equities would outperform the rest of the world. And we did see that probably in the first quarter. But actually, as the year has gone on, UK equities have obviously performed well, uh, as I mentioned, up 18.6%. However, that represents an underperformance of global equities. You look at the FTSE All World as a proxy, that's up 20.5%. So UK equities are still a little bit behind the rest of the world. Indeed, they are. And one of the questions is whether that will continue to catch up or whether that gap will remain wide. That's something we're going to find out this year, or at least we'll get more evidence about that this year. Well, let's talk about the performance of subsectors in the investment trust world, how they've performed this year and how that compares with what happened the year before. So let's start with the kind of NAV performance and talk about the performance of investment trusts in 2021. And then we can compare that back to 2020. So the uh, subsectors that performed particularly well in 2021, well, top of the pops would be the UK small cap subsector. So probably one of the weaker ones in 2020, but did very well in 2021. Uh, North American equities, uh, again, did well. And that would be one of the reasons why uh, global equities overall has performed so well. So North American investment trusts up on 25%. And actually, European smaller companies up 22% in NAV terms as well. So they've certainly enjoyed the kind of the reopening trade. They were particularly strong in the first quarter of 2021. At the other end of the spectrum, well, 2021 was a tough year for Japanese equities, particularly uh, smaller companies. And the other sec- subsector that struggled a bit in 2021 was the biotech and healthcare subsector. That was down 1% in NAV terms. Okay. So it is interesting. Yes. So the UK sectors were at the bottom of the pile in uh, 2020. Most of them produced negative returns on average in aggregate, whereas they all did pretty well in this year. Well, let's just look at share price performance next then, because obviously getting your NAV is one thing, up is one thing, but uh, getting your share price up is another because we have to factor in then the movement of discounts. And we can look at the movement of discounts in a moment. But just in terms of share price performance, uh, what does the story look like there for 2021? Again, very interesting pattern. Uh, Private equity has done particularly well in 2021, up 41% in that time. And that was really, I mean, we can talk a little bit about what's happened with private equity. They have been re-rated, but there's also been very strong NAV growth uh, has come through as well. Um, the other really interesting subject, I think, is uh, UK commercial property. Obviously, struggled quite a bit in 2020. We saw a number of the leading UK commercial property uh, funds derated for understandable reasons on the back of the pandemic, uh, but up 31% in 2021. The other interesting one as well is actually flexible investments, not necessarily an area that you expect to benefit from a kind of bounce back in, in markets. But actually, if you look at some of the names in the flexible investment subsector, Caledonia uh, up over 35%, RIC Capital Partners up 32%, and even uh, MIGO that we talked about relatively recently enjoyed a very strong year, up 28%. So that was very strong. Also commodities, and as I mentioned, UK small cap in share price terms as well, also did well. And down at the bottom in terms of uh, trust sectors that were derated, there are a handful, I think. Yeah, there are. I mean, again, of the leading subsectors, Japanese smaller companies, they struggled in 2021, down over 10%, 11%. Biotech and healthcare down 6%. And we talked recently in recent weeks about some of the results coming through from that subsector and how the differences between those 
portfolios that have got exposure to companies producing vaccines and the kind of the rest of the marketplace, which has been left behind. And also global emerging markets as well in share price terms ended up in negative territory. Uh, There was a bit of derating in that, but obviously China's performance as a market being very marked in difference between 2020 and 2021. I suppose the other thing we, sector we might talk about just briefly is technology, because that's one of the sectors that did very well in 2020, but actually went on to have another very good year this uh, this year. Yeah, technology is really interesting, actually. I mean, in 2020, in share price terms, that subsector was up 50%. Uh, and obviously, some of those uh, technology funds, so Pella Capital Technology, Alliance Global Technology, uh, enjoyed very, very strong returns. And initially, um, that didn't appear that it would uh, we'd see a bit of a, a derating or a quieter year, certainly in 2021, and certainly discounts widened out a little bit. And yet still, the returns they've produced on a subsector basis, very respectable, uh, not too far off 20% in share price terms. So if we now look then in terms of changes in discounts in, by subsector, and roughly what proportion of trusts saw a, uh, a re-rating, in other words, uh, the discount narrowed, and how many suffered a, uh, a de-rating? In other words, the discounts widened a little bit. I mean, every year this we get these fluctuations, and that's one of the things that makes the investment trust sector so interesting. But what would you say about that as a sort of overall picture of discounts? You're right, it is interesting. And probably the majority were of subsectors were de-rated in 2021. So if you look, and with apologies, I'm looking at data probably to the end of November, so it will have changed a little bit in December, but certainly as at the end of November of the 49 subsectors that exist across the wider investment company space, 30 had been derated in the first 11 months of the year, whereas 19 had been re-rated. So among those that had done well, funnily enough, again, property. Property has really enjoyed a good bounce back in 2021, clearly very economically sensitive. And if you look at those that have, have done particularly well, the property UK logistics subsector really saw their, their premium ratings, frankly, increase. Uh, we also saw a more general UK commercial property re-rated and, and uh, European property as well. Um, and thereafter, there's some more kind of specialist areas. Uh, growth capital is an interesting one. They saw the, the premiums creep up on that area. So that would be names such as uh, Shehalian and Chrysalis. Uh, and they certainly enjoyed a, a strong return in 2021. At the other end of the scale, what well, is a bit of a mixed bag, to be honest, but China or Greater China, that subsector, that certainly got uh, derated in 2021, probably at the start of that year. Uh, there was a lot of expectations. Obviously, 2020 had been a very good year uh, for Chinese equities, and there was a bit of a, a reversion to the mean in 21. Uh, and also Japanese smaller companies, as I mentioned, they've also got derated. So just picking up one other theme here, I mean, there was a distinct difference. We talked a lot about style rotation over the course of the year. In other words, the kind of equities that do well at different times, uh, sometimes, you know, growth or value or small cap or large cap. And you've mentioned the small cap uh, issue. But I was struck, for example, looking at the contrast between UK all companies sector, which is uh, got a mainstream UK equity trust, and the UK equity income sector which uh, did slightly better this year in relative terms, though still, I think, derated a little bit. So what explanation would you give for the disparity between the performance of the UK equity income sector and the UK all companies sector? Yes, they're quite different subsectors, particularly in terms of number of constituents. So uh, the UK all companies, uh, there are probably about seven or so investment trust companies that are categorised in that area, the largest of which is Fidelity Special Values, um, that's enjoyed a bit of a re-rating this year. It's, it's ended the year on a premium rating. In the case of UK equity income, it's a much broader 
sector, lots of names, lots of well-known names, and a few of them have been derated. So uh, we talked about Nick Train's investment trust, so Finsbury Growth and Income, uh, trading out at about 4 or 5% discount at the moment. That's much wider than it would have been on average over the year. City of London as well, Job Curtis's fund, just rating on that has, has softened a little bit as we approach the year end. On average, it's traded on a, a premium rating of about 1%, probably ends the year at a very small discount. So, you know, these are big funds, lots of money, and obviously can move things around a little bit. I think it's fair to say, Simon, when we talked about this a year ago, we talked about what might do well in this year. And uh, I think you mentioned both private equity and uh, commercial property. They obviously had both taken hits in 2020, and they have come back pretty strongly. But let's move on and talk about fundraising this year. We've talked an awful lot about fundraising. We've mentioned several times that this has been a very, very good year for fundraising, but particularly in terms of secondary issuance. But just to sum up now, we obviously have had a couple more IPOs uh, since uh, we talked about this earlier in the year. But what's the story about fundraising over the year? What's happened and how do you explain it? Well, again, let's start with the numbers. I mean, it is a record year for fundraising. I've got data here to the end of November. Obviously, we're just still compiling uh, the final data for the end of 2021. But for the first 11 months of the year, we had £14.3 billion raised across the investment company sector. That represents an increase of over 80% for the comparable period in 2020. And even on 2019, which you may argue is a more normal year, it's up 60% in those terms. So very, very strong. You know, what's driven it? Well, if you look at where the money has been raised in terms of subsectors, I mean, infrastructure has been very, very popular. So of that 14.3 billion, over 37% has been raised for infrastructure funds. Again, we talked literally every week about oversubscribed placings in that area. There's clearly huge demand for those type of issues, both existing infrastructure plays, particularly on the renewable energy side, and some of the new ideas. And we'll come on to talk about those. But there's also been very strong demand for as you mentioned, more kind of secondary, you know, regular tap issuance. So if you look at the pie, so to speak, of where the money's been raised, about 21% has come from kind of more general UK or global equity type names. And within that, you've got names such as Smithson, for instance, raised over half a billion pounds in the first 11 months of 2021. Scottish Mortgage, not too far off that number. And again, it's not all about kind of growth focused names. You've got Capital Gearing Trust, over 270 million, personal assets over 200 million, and even more specialist mandates as well. So impacts environmental, nearly 150 million, all in the first 11 months of the year. So that regular issuance probably accounts for about 4 billion of that 14 billion. So IPOs are probably, you know, capture the limelight, 21% of the money raised in that first 11 months of the year were for, for IPOs. But actually, it's that kind of regular issuance that has really driven the sector on. And that obviously reflects the kind of demand that's out there, particularly for investments that can generate uh, sustainable income or continue to have long-term growth track records like Smithson. I mean, Smithson raising that amount of money. I mean, has there been a case before in secondary issuance where uh, a trust has raised more than 500 million in a year? I mean, I know you haven't <laughs> researched this answer, but uh, just <laughs> off the top of your head, does it seem likely that there was ever been something like that? I would be surprised. I'm just I'm thinking about possibly Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust at some stage might have done it, but I, I suspect no one else will have come close to that. Going back over recent years to have raised more than £100 million through regular tap issuance would be a real achievement. And obviously, there are a number of funds that have done that and have done that consistently. But you're right. It's you know There's a lot of retail demand coming in for those well-known uh, investment trust companies. And 
perhaps something that we will come on to talk about, but it seems to be that it's it's not just kind of following those uh, investment trusts that have performed very well. So the Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust, there is also an allocation to those more defensively orientated investment companies that have held up very well through different market conditions and personal assets and capital gearing trust, rougher as well, three very good examples of that type of vehicle. Well, we could just mention the IPOs, I guess. Uh, I mean, looking through the list of IPOs, and we've talked about them all this year, it has been pretty concentrated in, well, basically, as you said, in the infrastructure area. Would you just pick out one or two of the highlights? So what was the, uh, the the biggest, most successful one this year? I think 15 IPOs was, was the final tally in 2021, raising over £3 billion. Of that 15, nine were in the infrastructure space, but some quite you know key differences coming through. They're not uh, all kind of generic product. Uh, the largest IPO, that would be for Pantheon Infrastructure. That raised over £400 million back in November. So very, very successful. Pantheon, obviously well-known in the investment companies universe for its private equity fund. But to launch a £400 million new vehicle is, is a big success. But again, within that infrastructure space, we saw some different offerings. So probably to pick out Cordiant Digital Infrastructure, which raised £370 million back in February. Digital 9 raised £185 million back in May. And again, more kind of specialist versions on the infrastructure theme. And then towards the end of the year, in, in December, probably the final IPO that we saw of the year, Thomas Lloyd Energy Impact raised $150 million US dollars. So certainly not the largest IPO of the year, but focused on on Asian infrastructure in the Philippines and India. And again, a more specialist version of this infrastructure theme. But there are some really interesting IPOs across the wider investment companies universe. I mean, to pick out a couple, Seraphin Space Investment Trust raised nearly 180 million at launch back in July, uh, a very different uh, growth capital venture kind of play. And then uh, later on in the year, we saw Life Science REIT raise 350 million in November. So not a bumper year for you know, more specialist property companies coming to the market, but certainly that one did get away. And that's in contrast to a number that didn't. So we saw Responsible Housing fail to launch a UK residential REIT, another IPO that didn't get across the line. And we also saw, just to pick out a couple of other names that uh, didn't quite make it, Lion Trust, ESG Trust, and Blackfinch Renewable European Income. So it still remains, you know, quite difficult, I think, to raise IPOs unless you've really got that asset class spot on. Obviously, the other side of the coin, we've talked a lot about record year for fundraising and equity issuance, but uh, there's also been buybacks, of course. The other feature of uh, the investment trust sector is that many trusts can repurchase shares, which they do uh, normally to uh, help improve their rating. But um, uh, what's been the story there? If the sector raised $14 how much did it uh, give back, if you like, in, in the form of buybacks? Well, again, looking at data for the first 11 months of the year, it came in at $1.8 billion. So in other words, there have been net inflows to the investment companies sector. But that 1.8 billion, that represented a 14% increase for the comparable period from 2020. So certainly buybacks were active. If you actually look at the names of uh, investment trust companies buying back their own shares, there's an interesting pattern emerging, actually. So Scottish Mortgage is the largest. So I mentioned that they'd issued shares worth around about half a billion pounds in 2021, well, they bought back shares not too far off that in the first 11 months of the year, about 465 million. So net net, they're up, but they seem prepared to use their buyback power to reduce their discount volatility. But if you look across the top 15 investment trust companies who bought back shares in 2021, or certainly for the first 11 months, then eight of the top 15 
are global investment trusts. In other words, they're investment trusts focused on global equities. And I think that does raise an issue. I mean, global equities as an asset class is clearly in demand. It's been in demand for a number of years. It would seem to be that UK-based investors in general are quite happy to increase their exposure to overseas equities. And clearly, if you look at the returns, that has been the correct decision in recent years. And yet, despite that, we are seeing quite a lot of buyback activity from global investment trusts. So putting the Scottish mortgage to one side, if you actually look at the names thereafter, it's Witten, it's Alliance Trust, it's F&C Investment Trust, Scottish Investment Trust that we may come on to talk about, and then BMO Global Smaller Companies, AVI Global, and Murray International. And you do wonder whether investors, and particularly retail investors, are looking to make their allocation to kind of more growth orientated strategies and then at the same time balance that off with more defensive plays rather than uh, elect to invest in what we used to call global generalists. So the kind of one size fits all type investment approach. So that's certainly a trend that we're monitoring and, and look to see how that develops in 2022. One of the issues for global equity trust has always been the issue of how far they deviate, if you like, from uh whether you're actually getting something extra other than global exposure. In other words, something you could do by getting a, an ETF or a passive index fund, that sort of thing. In the past, maybe people didn't worry about that too much, but these days they have to worry about that as, as competition because they're probably cheaper. And second issue, of course, is how much to allocate to the US market. And uh, you know, managers in the UK for a long time have thought that the US market was overvalued and heading for a fall. Yet, yet again this year, we've seen the US market trump all others effectively, or most others, down another extraordinarily strong performance. And uh, there aren't, of course, many specialist investment trusts in the North American sector. Which of those issues do you think is the most important as far as these uh, venerable, should I say, uh, generalist uh, investment trusts are? No, I think they're all very valid points, frankly. And I think it is clearly a challenge for those more generalist investment trusts. I mean, I think the argument coming into 2021 was, well, we've seen a market very skewed to growth investors. Perhaps we would see a more balanced marketplace where value would come a little bit more into favour and therefore those investment trusts with a less style uh, orientation would, would really come to the fore. And that hasn't really happened, or it didn't really happen in, in 2021, to be perfectly honest. I mean, as we know, value enjoyed its moment in the sun probably in the first quarter of the year. Uh, and you, you saw some of the kind of few remaining value-orientated investment trusts benefit during that time. But, you know, growth still looks very, very compelling on a, on a long-term view. But clearly, there are those investment trusts, the ones I mentioned, trying to use their, their structure. So F&C Investment Trust, for instance, uh, has quite a significant allocation to, to private equity, to unlisted companies. So they're trying to use the close and do fund structure to, to provide access to that. You know, names like Witten, uh, they're doing some very interesting things with their mandate. There's a kind of, as well as being a multi-manager type approach, that there is an allocation that the chief executive and the investment director are responsible for themselves. Alliance Trust have now introduced an enhanced dividend policy. So again, using the structure, albeit at a relatively modest level. So, I mean, I think they're all very aware of the issues and trying to position themselves accordingly. Yes, I think that was the point I was going to make. In the last few years, they've all kind of had to look to freshen up their mandates or the way they go about doing their business. But as of yet, it hasn't really kind of struck a chord with investors, at least or so it appears, from the fact that they're doing all these buybacks and trying to defend. I mean, do you have the figures of what the ratings on those three are at the moment and how they compare? I mean, they're all presumably trading on sort of modest single-digit discounts, that sort of thing. Is that right? 
Yeah, that's right. So if you look at Lions Trust at the moment, it's on about a six, six and a half percent discount. Witten not too dissimilar on about seven point three percent, and FNC Investment Trust again about six, six and a half percent. So all much of a muchness. Right. So let's move on then and just talk briefly about corporate activity. We always seem to enjoy these particular items, particularly on the podcast, because there's usually some action and and sometimes even some conflict. We have had a bit of conflict this year. It's a subject which I uh, read something about in the Investment Trust Handbook this year. So let's just talk about it. Has it been an exceptional year for corporate activity or would you say it's just the usual collection of interesting developments in not always very uh, high profile trusts? What I think you could say, and it's always the safest prediction any investment trust analyst can ever make, is that we're always going to see a high level of corporate activity in the investment trust sector. I think you make a point almost every week on the podcast, there's always something to talk about. And 2021 uh, was no exception. I mean, you could argue that it was slightly quieter in certain regard than 2020. So the, the, the first year of the pandemic, then we did seem to see a very high level of manager changes or, or, or comings and goings. One client who's a little bit cynical suggested that perhaps it was because uh, investment trust directors were spending more time looking at their mandates rather than spending time on the golf course that resulted in such a high level of manager changes. I suspect that's a little cynical, but it's certainly true in terms of changes in managers. You know, we did see some big ones. So Genesis Emerging Markets moving to Fidelity. It's now known as Fidelity Emerging Markets, adopted a long, short approach to emerging markets. That was probably the headline change in the year. And we did see Jupiter US smaller companies move to Brown Advisory. That had been announced in 2020, so the year before it actually happened in 2021. But thereafter, it was relatively quiet. I mean, Acorn Income Fund, uh, there was a proposal to move to BMO and adopt a sustainable global equity income mandate that was dropped. And and obviously, we spent quite a lot of time talking about Gresham House Strategic, which is now known as Rockwood Realization. Uh, that has moved to Harvard, although following consultations with shareholders, uh, they've decided to adopt a managed wind down proposal. So a quieter year for manager changes in 2021. OK, I mean, the other one I guess we should mention, because we referred to it earlier, is uh, the disappearance of the Scottish Investment Trust, which after a long history, since 1887, as I recall, that's gone. And that is a kind of reminder, along with Genesis, that there is activity always in the investment trust sector, but it's often a force for good as well, in the sense that if investment trusts do struggle or they lose their popular appeal, at least, or have a question mark over their future in the case of Genesis emerging markets, I suppose one would say, boards will often take action, even if it's quite a substantial trust. And both Scottish Investment Trust and Genesis emerging markets were very big trusts. I mean, they're bigger than you normally see suffering these kind of mandate changes. No, I think that's right. And and in fact, I'd say that the changes in management were lower than in 2020. However, we have seen a lot of merger activity in 2021. That's definitely been something that's picked up. So Scottish Investment Trust, that merger hasn't happened yet with JP Morgan Global Growth and Income, but it's expected to happen by the end of the first quarter of 2022. But what we did see go through in 2021, we saw the merger of BH Macro and BH Global, That followed a fee increase and and a tender offer. We saw City Merchants High Yield and Invesco Enhanced Income merge to become Invesco Bond Income Plus. We also saw a few other names disappear as well. The other one I should mention is Aberdeen Emerging Markets and Aberdeen New Thai. They merged to, to become the Aberdeen China Investment Company as well. So I think mergers are definitely a theme within the investment company sector that seems to be gathering a little bit of traction. They're not entirely straightforward to execute. But I think there's a good rationale why they should be considered by non-executive boards. And it certainly seems to be the case that 
certain groups of investors are quite keen on them. So, for instance, the BH Macro and BH Global deal, that was at the instigation of Investec Wealth and Investment. So they're a large wealth manager uh, who approached those respective boards and said, listen, could you consider putting these two vehicles together? Because for them to have larger investment trust vehicles means they can become more investable. Liquidity is very important in the secondary market and having subscale investment trust companies uh, can be a barrier for those larger wealth managers. Yes, and as you mentioned it earlier, I mean, the directors are on the golf course. You know, it always used to be said that they aren't going to vote to put themselves out of a job and spend even more time on the golf course by voting for a merger because you usually lose one or two directors when that happens. But that view seems to be at least, how should we say, uh, there is some contrary evidence at least that uh, directors are putting the interests of the shareholders and the company before their own personal interests in these matters. The final point we should make, I guess we have to mention there's a couple of activist shareholder cases we haven't talked about so far in this podcast. So we've talked about them a lot in the course of the year. Again, we don't see much activist activity in the investment trust sector, I think it's fair to say in general. But when it does happen, it's quite notable and uh, often does produce some interesting outcomes and not to say some robust language, shall we say. So let's uh, just talk about a couple of those then. So we've had Civitas Social Housing. Uh, which where there was a short seller made an attack on the company and uh, also our friends at Third Point Investors, Dan Loeb's hedge fund. Uh, that continues and we're going to talk about that in a moment. What are your comments about these in general? Am I right in saying that it's now pretty rare to see activist activity in uh, in the investment trust sector? Or is that because boards are just taking their responsibilities more seriously and we don't need activist investors to come along and tell them they ought to be changing what they do? You know, look, I, I've been involved in investment trust companies for some 20 years, and there are phases when you do see a pickup in shareholder activism. And, you know, you go back to the bit noughties and arbitrageurs were all over the investment trust sector, kind of picking up strategic stakes from institutional investors who were invariably exiting at that stage and then forcing liquidations or tender offers or, or whatever it may be. I think those days have, have gone, but every now and again, something does pop up. I mean, there are those people who will see kind of shareholder activism as a, as a menace, as a distraction, as something that takes up too much board time. And equally, there are those that will see it as actually something that keeps the market relatively healthy and ensures that discounts don't become too wide and keeps boards focused, which I think is quite a strong argument as well. I mean, clearly, there are instances where we can look at shareholder activism and and say, well, that probably doesn't feel quite right. And um, as you mentioned, we're going to come on and talk about third point in just a moment in that particular instance and how that's developing. But I think overall, I think most people would agree that in general, uh, to have shareholders being active is a good thing. And, and you know, going back to my comment about Investec Wealth and Investment earlier, the fact that they as a, as a large investment trust are prepared to approach boards, not really shareholder activism, but to make their suggestions, their points and push for better outcomes. I think that's definitely a trend that we've seen uh, pick up in recent years from you know the wealth management community and, and other institutional investors prepared to be a little bit more on the front foot and get across their point of view. So we'll come back at the very end just to talk about the outlook for next year. But uh, let's move on then and talk about some recent corporate activities. So we're going to pick up on the news that we didn't cover before because there was no podcast last week, as I've said. And let's talk about, first of all, Crystal Amber Fund, ticker CRS. This is a pretty small fund, not on most people's radar. But um, tell us what's uh, the latest update there. So Crystal Amber Fund announced just before Christmas that they were proposing a managed wind-down process over a 24-month period. The proposals included a revised remuneration agreement with the investment manager to incentivize them 
in terms of the realization value. Uh, a circular is going to be published in January, early in 2022, and there will be an EGM for shareholders to approve the strategy. But basically, this follows the failed continuation vote in November. Uh, at that stage, 49% voted against continuation. They required 75% to get it across the line. One of the leading shareholders, Saba Capital, when 26% of the shares had made it clear that they were going to vote against continuation. Mm. So this is the investment team and the board of Crystal Amber responding to that and putting their proposals on the table. Bearing in mind, it's a very concentrated portfolio. So about five of the largest holdings of the strategic holdings, as they refer to them, represent about 90% of the NAV. So they're saying, give us two years to you know wind this portfolio down. And just remind us, Crystal Amber, it's in the UK smaller companies sector, if I'm right. And what's its performance been? What, what led to this situation arising? You're right, it is in the UK small cap sector. It's trading on about a 20% discount. And in terms of its long-term performance, well, it's it's had a difficult period. So if you look at five years, share price total return, it's down about 35% over the last five years. Okay, so that's not uh, well, not something you want to dwell on, perhaps, though the shareholders obviously are dwelling on it. Uh, let's move on and talk about uh, EP Global Opportunities, ticker EPG which, as we know, has been seeking shareholder support to make a rather radical change in its mandate and strategy. That's right. And shareholder support was forthcoming and, and quite compelling, actually. 98.5% of the votes were cast in favour of the proposed change, the investment objective. And just to remind people, this was the idea that the, the investment trust would become self-managed. Sandy Nen uh, was going to become the executive director. And there was far more flexibility in terms of the, the mandates up to 30% in private investments. Shareholders also approved a tender offer. So that tender offers for up to 20% at a 2% discount. So basically, it's a green light for Sandy. Indeed it is. But of course, we don't know what the outcome of the uh, tender offer will be. Obviously, it's quite a radical change. And you would imagine that there will be a number of investors who want to take advantage of that tender, and then it'll be interesting to see what happens after that. Uh, let's move on and talk about uh, GCP Student Living. The ticker there is DIGS, D-I-G-S, and we know this one is, uh, oh, we're not going to have this one around for much longer, but uh, tell us what the latest on the, this one is. So basically, this investment company stopped trading or became delisted uh, just ahead of Christmas, and that was on the back uh, of a bid that came in for it. So we'd, we've been talking about this for a number of months. It was a bid for 213p in cash for each share. So that was finally approved and uh, the fund became suspended, delisted on the 20th of December. So shareholders should have received their money by now. So we've we've talked that one and that is uh, no more. Uh, let's move on and talk about Greencoat Renewables and Greencoat UK Win. Obviously, we've heard about the fact that uh, Schroeder's is going to take a significant shareholding in the management company. Yeah, I think the last time we talked about this, Schroeder's just responded to some media speculation that a deal might be forthcoming. Just ahead of Christmas, Schroeder's announced that they had indeed agreed a deal. And what they've agreed to do is acquire a 75% shareholding in Greencoat Capital, who's the investment manager of both Greencoat Renewables and Greencoat UK Wind. According to media reports, in fact, and the announcement as well, I should say, uh, the initial consideration will be just short of £360 million. And there'll be an additional or up to £120 million over a three-year period subject to uh, earnings and so on and so forth. In terms of the boards, the two investment companies involved neither expect any changes to the relationship with the investment manager 
and respective management teams, and, and they are going to remain in place. So it should be absolutely business as usual for those two investment trust companies. But I think it is interesting, again, the direction of travel. And I think we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, how some of the mainstream investment managers are looking towards these more alternative specialists, and particularly in these kind of areas. I mean, obviously, ESG, a huge issue across the investment management industry, and to have a specialist uh, investment house that is kind of tapping into this is obviously quite attractive to mainstream uh, investment managers. Yes, and I think we did talk about this, but I mean, it is the case that presumably we're still not clear what Schroeder's ambitions are. We know they've paid quite a high price for this, what looks like a fairly rich price to acquire Greencoat Capital or the, the majority shareholding at least. But do you think their main effort is going to be in just marketing the existing funds or do you think uh, they will be trying to add new funds as well? Do we have any clues about that? I think, again, looking at some of the commentary around this, I mean, Greencoat Capital, uh, I think, have assets under management about $6.7 which is obviously not insubstantial. But the price that Schroders have agreed to pay uh, would suggest that they're very much focused on the growth that Greencoat Capital can generate. Uh, and clearly, it's, you know, to my point earlier, it is an area of the marketplace that has seen a lot of traction. Greencoat have enjoyed their part in that. And, and clearly, I suspect Schroeder's are hoping that that's a trend that will continue over a number of years. I mean, the problem, I guess, is the whole reason why this sector has done so well in the investment trust space is because it's actually quite difficult to organise open-ended funds that invest in, in this kind of project, you know, similar to commercial property and so on, because of the liquidity issues. But Schroeder's is a very large global fund manager. They've gone through quite an aggressive phase of growth. I think it's fair to say this isn't the only deal they've done recently. So uh, it will be interesting to see if they can find other ways to bring more investment trust to this particular space in the next uh, few years. So let's move on and talk about uh, JP Morgan European Investment Trust, ticker JETG and JETI. Uh, those are the two share classes at the moment, but that may be changing. So uh, give us the update there. So this deal was originally announced back in October. It followed a strategic review, but effectively, as you just suggested, they are looking for shareholder approval to merge the two share classes, so the growth leg and the income leg. And there will be one single share class. The fund will be renamed the JP Morgan European Growth and Income Investment Trust. And this idea is that you get the unification of income and growth. The idea is that there will be a target annual dividend of 4% of NEV, so that's an enhanced dividend, but effectively the portfolio will be as the growth portfolio is at the moment. There will be a general meeting held on the 24th of January, so they need shareholder approval to move this on. But there are also a number of other bells and whistles as well. So the management fee is being reduced and there's a one-off 25% performance-related tender offer should the fund underperform over a five-year period. So this is uh, an interesting one in one sense. I mean, the background to this is that JP Morgan has kind of pioneered these uh, growth and income dual share class trusts, or at least they're very prominent in that area. So why do you think this particular trust has gone this particular way? Is it a matter of liquidity, of size, or disappointment with the performance, or what? What do you think the underlying explanation is here? Well, certainly the income leg has struggled a little bit in recent years. So if you look at over a three-year NAV sort of return basis, um, it's lagged the wider European peer group. I think size is, is an issue. So going back to the point that we we're making earlier about why mergers are suddenly finding a bit of traction. I mean, if you look at the two share classes, the growth leg's got a market cap of about 280 million. The income leg's got a market cap of about 130, 140 million. So significantly smaller. And in a, in a subsector that is not necessarily enjoying strong demand, despite the fact that Europe hasn't been a bad place for investors to be this year. I suspect the rationale is to put these two 
share classes together just gives it a bit more critical mass. You're going to look at a vehicle nearer to about 500 million, and that brings it more in line with its peer group. It's also worth noting that the discount on both those share classes are are wider than the average for the peer group, so probably about 6% on average. The growth share class is on about 12% discount at the moment, and the income share class is on about a 13-14% discount. So that does suggest there was an issue to be addressed indeed. Let's move on and talk about Dissian and Strategic Equity Capital. These are two investment trusts which have a sort of shared history in a way. But what's the latest development here? We know there's been some issues around Strategic Equity Capital and Dissian, their common heritage. Can you unpick the latest in this story for us, Simon? I mean, it's a little bit involved, but effectively, just ahead of Christmas, the board of Edisian Investment Trust made a proposal to the board of Strategic Equity Capital regarding a combination, and that would be via a scheme of reconstruction by Strategic Equity Capital and a transfer of its assets into Edisian. The combined entity would be managed by Edisian Capital and pursuing the same investment strategy that Edisian Investment Trust does at the moment. Now, they've got letters of intent supporting the transaction from shareholders representing just under a third or 33% of Strategic Equity Capital's issued share capital. And the board of Edisian believe that the combined entity would benefit from a long-term supportive shareholder base and strong shareholder liquidity and so on and so forth. The board of Strategic Equity Capital have said that they will consider the proposal in conjunction with their advisors. I mean, in all fairness to them, I think this came out about two days before Christmas. So I, I suspect they had other things on their mind at that precise moment in time. And there will be, unsurprisingly, further announcements in due course. So this is an interesting development. This, again, is, a, is a, another potential merger situation. I mean, just in terms of a little bit of background, Stuart Widdison and Ed Wilczowski are responsible for a DCN Investment Trust that was launched back in May 2018. And it's worth noting that Stuart was a former manager of Strategic Equity Capital. In terms of how it's performed, Edisian, since its launch, it's done very well, actually. The NFV and share price are both up about 66%. That represents an outperformance of its index, and and it's actually outperformed strategic equity capital over that time as well. That's up about 43% in NEV terms, about 45% in share price terms. But just in terms of the background of strategic equity capital, it's worth noting that it moved to Gresham House Asset Management back in 2020. A gentleman called Ken Wooten was appointed manager in September 2020, we did see in March 2021 a general meeting called after two shareholders. Basically, requisition that general meeting was a continuation vote. 82% of shareholders voted in favour of that. Uh, and Gresham House subsequently took a 5% stake in strategic equity capital. However, the fund does have two contingent tender offers on the table. One, if its discount remains wide, and then the second, if uh, it underperforms over a period of time. So there has been an issue with strategic equity capital in terms of its rating. Well, we don't know how this is going to play out, but uh, it seems to be there's a bit of logic. I mean, there's some common shareholdings around here as well, aren't there, I think. So we'll be interested to see whether this one uh, comes to fruition. Mergers, as I mentioned before, always very difficult to pull off, as you said, and they're quite complicated. And it does require the willing acquiescence of uh, the boards on both sides of the argument. I won't ask you to call this one, Simon, because your house is a broker to Odyssean Investment Trust. But uh, how long do you think this will play out? Do you think it's going to be done uh, quickly if people want it to happen? Or will it just drag out another of these sagas that we've been talking about <laughs> more than once this year? Well, the ball is obviously in the court of the Board of Strategic Equity Capital, and they will look at this, I'm sure, very, very closely. And you'd expect a proper announcement, full announcement 
early in the new year. I mean, it's worth noting the respective ratings. I mean, we've got a DCN Investment Trust on a 2% premium rating uh, at the moment, at present. And the SEC, so Strategic Equity Capital, has been uh, re-rated to an extent on the back of this news, but it still finds itself on about a 12% discount at present as well. And I think that's uh, an interesting element of this to watch. But yes, I suspect this is one that we will be discussing in forthcoming podcasts in, in the weeks ahead of us. Just finally, is there a sort of scale issue here? I mean, uh, strategic equity capital is, is bigger than uh, Odyssean, I think. So this, if it went through, it would be a consolidation, would create a, a, a more significant size trust. Maybe uh, there might be some capacity issues there around if they do combine. What do you think? I mean, you're right. SEC is large. I've got about 220, 225 million of assets compared to about 155 or so for a DCN at the moment. So um, strategic equity capital is larger. I mean, in terms of capacity, I mean, regardless of whether this particular deal goes ahead, I think the investment team at Odyssey have made it clear that they do have capacity in terms of their investment strategy. They've been looking to raise additional capital for over the last year or two. So, I mean, they're very convinced that they can deploy further capital and still achieve the, the return profile that they're looking for. So I, I suspect they would say that the capacity is not really an issue at this level. So let's move on and talk about third point investors. We mentioned them earlier, ticker TPOU, which is, as I said before, Dan Loeb's uh, hedge fund venture, where there's been this rather acrimonious dispute between the board and Mr. Loeb himself and uh, some activist shareholders. We talked about activism before, led by asset value investors, I think it's fair to say. Uh, So this is ongoing and uh, it's taken rather a dramatic uh, turn. Yes. And again, this was announced just ahead of Christmas. Basically, um, there have been a series of meetings between third point investors and the activist shareholders, which include asset value investors, you mentioned, and Stout Capital. And at one of these meetings, apparently one of the activists threatened to attack the chairman personally in other business areas if he refused to accede to the activist proposals. As a result of that, the chairman, so a gentleman called Steve Bates, believed his position to be untenable, and he submitted his resignation. This prompted Dan Loeb, the CEO of Third Point, to comment that this was a loss to shareholders and that this is the quote, the behaviour of these so-called activists is a stain on institutional investors who attempt to engage constructively with boards and management teams. And he accused the activists of juvenile antics. So I think most people would see this as a disappointing development, frankly. I mean, quite apart from the colourful language. I mean, Steve Bates is someone who's been around the investment trust sector for any number of years. He's a highly respected independent director. He's been on a number of boards, including names such as Biotech Growth. He's the chairman of the Vietnam Opportunities Fund, JP Morgan Elect, as well as Third Point. And he's a very experienced professional in his own right. He was previously the head of global emerging markets at JP Morgan Asset Management. And it's also worth noting he once was on the board of AVI Global Trust itself. I think he was a director of that particular vehicle between 2006 and 2018. So he will know some of the personalities very well in which he is engaged. So I personally would see this as a disappointing uh, development. Who knows exactly what was said in the meeting. But for Steve Bates to resign as a result of it uh, leaves a slightly nasty taste in the mouth. I mean, clearly things need to be sorted out and moved on. It's not an altogether straightforward situation as we have discussed over any number of weeks. But this, to me, would seem to be a disappointing development. 
Unless I've missed it, I mean, this suggestion that the activists were threatening his position, it's not been denied, has it, by the activist investors? Uh, but it is only, uh, we only have Dan Loeb's word for it at the moment, and that's what happened. Other than the fact that the chairman has indeed resigned, as you say, and he's a very experienced manager, he might be, of course, quite happy to be out of the situation and not having to deal with this rather complicated situation with uh, obviously strong and committed professional investors on both sides. I mean, Dan Loeb is no shrinking violet, and AVI made their name by not being afraid to put their head where it hurts kind of thing. So uh, it is unfortunate that it is developed in this way, I would say. Um, but in terms of the substance here, this whole argument has been about whether or not third-point investors should be doing more to improve their rating and get their discount down. I mean, it was improving. The discount was narrowing. But uh, what's the current situation? Yeah, it's still on a double-digit discount, probably about 14% or so at the moment. It compares with an average over the previous 12 months of about 15%. So I mean, we have seen a little bit of discount volatility. It's worth noting as well, in terms of performance, it's certainly not been a bad performer over the last three years. I mean, I've got the share price total return performance over three years up 100%, though clearly it has been a strong uh, period in general for US equities where this is largely exposed. Interesting. Well, we haven't heard the last of this one, I'm sure. So we've got time just to pick on a couple of results before we finish and talk briefly about the outlook for next year. So we could just mention Scottish Investment Trust, presumably their uh, almost final set of results. Not quite, as this has not gone through yet, the merger with JP Morgan, Global Growth and Income. Uh, that's ticker SCIN, uh, and they have produced some uh, annual results. These were annual results for the year to the end of October 2021. In that time, they generated an NAV total return just short of 16%. That compared with a rise of nearly 30% for their reference index. In share price terms, that was up 24% as the discount narrowed in. But as you say, we're awaiting the merger, the combination with JP Morgan Global Growth and Income, and shareholders have approved that. And that's all expected to go through by the end of the first quarter of 2022. Moving on, we're going to talk briefly about JP Morgan Indian Investment Trust, ticker JII. It's been a very good year for Indian equities. And this trust, I'm sure, has benefited from that. It's interesting the contrast between India and China, where the Chinese trusts have all suffered heavily this year, but the Indian investment trusts uh, have performed very well, despite suffering quite significantly from the virus. So t tell us about uh, this one. These were annual results for the year to the end of September. In that time, they generated an NAV total return of 43.2%, which uh, sounds impressive, but actually it was slightly behind the benchmark return. That was up 468 in share price terms, they came in at 45.4 as the discount narrowed a little bit. But that underperformance was partially attributed to the strong recovery of cyclical lower quality names, which the portfolio is underweight. The board did note that they are keeping a close eye on performance and noted that Ayaz Ibrahim uh, has joined the management team and they obviously believe that's a positive step forward. But they're just keeping things under review for the time being. Right. So despite the fact the Indian market did well, they actually underperformed. But 43% uh, NAV total return, not so bad. But this trust, like some of the other Indian investment trusts, uh, it's still not much in favour with investors, it's fair to say, I think, is it? The strong performance of the Indian market has not resulted in a re-rating in this one. No, I think that's a fair comment. I've got it on about a 17% discount at the moment. Uh, and to be fair, if you look at the other names in that space, so Aberdeen, New India, that's on a 14% discount. India Capital Growth, 11% discount. The outlier is Ashoka India Equity, and that's on a 2% premium, but the rest are on double-digit discounts. And if you look at the, the returns from that subsector, Ashoka is the strongest on a three-year NAV total return basis. That's up 102%, so it's doing something a little bit different, clearly. 
Aberdeen, New India, India Capital Growth, probably not much in it, around 35 34%. But the JP Morgan Indian Fund's a little bit behind. So they're up 22% over that three-year period in NAV terms. So it has been disappointing over that medium term. Let's talk next about Gore Street Energy Storage, ticker GSF. This is obviously, as the name suggests, one of these newer renewable energy trusts investing in storage systems. They've had some results. These were interim results to the end of September. The NEV was up 2.4% in that time. Uh, and the, really the key drivers of that were the commercial operation of some assets in Northern Ireland and also the reduction in discount rates for some of their construction assets as well. Uh, they paid 3p of dividends in the period and they've declared 4p relating to the period. But the operational portfolio continues to perform in line with the manager's expectations. And then we're going to mention Ediston Property Investment Company, ticker EPIC, E-P-I-C. They've had some annual results. So let's mention those. And then perhaps also worth mentioning the share price performance this year, as you've mentioned commercial property trusts before. Yeah, interesting set of results. So these were annual results to the end of September. Uh, in terms of their NAV total return, they came in about 9.6%, so obviously positive. But it's the share price return that really caught the eye. In share price to return terms, they were up nearly 55% as the discount narrowed from 41% to 18% in that particular period. It's continued to narrow subsequently. I've got on about a 5% discount or so at the moment. But in the period in question, the property portfolio saw a like-for-like increase of about 5% or so. But they've made the decision to kind of tilt the portfolio to retail warehousing. That represented about 74% of the portfolio at the end of September. But that's where they're going to concentrate going forward. So actually, they've been making a number of disposals. They've sold a supermarket. They've acquired a retail park. And they're moving the portfolio around. They've also completed three developments but there's a good story on the dividend side as well. So they paid a dividend per share equivalent to 4.42p for the financial year. That was down from their 2020 financial year, which came in at 4.88p. But obviously, within that time, there were a number of dividend cuts and suspensions. So actually, really, it's worth looking at where they are moving forward. So actually, from May 2021, they increased the dividend by 25% back up to an annualised dividend of, of 5p. And in fact, dividend cover in the financial year came in at 120%, just under 120%, and 90% of the rent due for the financial year was collected. So although they're not quite back at the pre-pandemic dividend level, which was 5.75p, they seem to be uh, moving in the right direction. And so they've successfully moved into an area which has proved very popular, as we know, in terms of investor support. That is to say, uh, they've moved into this uh, warehouse logistics sector where the specialist trusts there have all uh, trade at premiums. And there seems to be good reason to believe that will continue for some time. So I guess we should say well done to them. Finally, in terms of results or announcements, let's talk about Round Hill Music one of the two music royalty trusts. We couldn't end the year without talking about a music royalty trust. They've given us a lot of entertainment value this year, as well as uh, producing some not unrespectable returns. So tell us about the latest announcements and give us your full detailed knowledge of the music that they've acquired. <laughs> well, suffice to say, Roundhill Music Royalty Fund have been very busy. They certainly haven't had, would appear, much downtime over the festive period. So they've actually made three announcements since Christmas. And basically, these are all acquisitions. So I'm going to throw some names at you. I've got to be honest, they don't mean an awful lot to me. But one of the acquisitions is of the producer royalties of Jack Richardson and Garth Richardson. I think they might be father and son, actually. But their portfolio includes timeless hits by Alice Cooper, Bob Sager, Rage Against the Machine, 
Chevelle, Nickelback, Rise Against and Trapped. So that's one acquisition. They've also acquired the master recordings and music publishing assets from the leading American reggae band Revolution. And that looks quite an interesting catalogue. I'm not even going to share the names that, that exist within that catalogue at this particular moment. But they've also acquired a significant share of the publishing rights of a gentleman called Nico Moon, who is an American country singer and songwriter as well. So that acquisition comprises of 29 compositions, including songs performed by the Zac Brown Band. So they're all names to, to conjure with and add to your playlist on Spotify. Indeed. Well, I shall be looking into some of them, I'm sure. And just uh, give us an update on how the shares and the C shares in this investment trust are performing. So the ordinary share class is trading at $1.06 at the moment. That's broadly in line, maybe just slightly under the, the last NAV. The C share class, I've got that at $0.96, cents, so a little bit below uh, the issue price. Uh, it would have been issued at a dollar, so a little bit below that. But obviously, it's all about getting that money invested at the moment. So that brings us to the end of the announcements that we're going to talk about. It is the end of the year coming up. It's 31st of December when we're recording this. I know, Simon, that one of the things you'll be doing over the next few days is uh, polishing off your annual review as uh, one of the hefty tomes that comes out every year. And, well, I don't expect you to give me a complete insight into what you're going to say. But, um, I mean, as we go into this new year, obviously, we've got the pandemic is still around. We've got the prospect of interest rate rises from the Federal Reserve and the Bank of England, no doubt. So every year we look ahead and we're sort of optimistic but realistic. And uh, We've had a very good run since the pandemic. Do you uh, want to offer us a thought about where your clients will be uh, looking to invest in the coming year? Yeah, I know it's a good question. I mean, every year there is always a temptation at this time of the year or the start of the year to basically think, well, it might be a little bit different this time round. But I think invariably the patterns, the trends that we've seen coming into the end of the year continue. So the things that we talked about in recent weeks or recent months are going to stay with us. So obviously, in terms of general market themes, there's going to be a lot of focus on coming through the pandemic and how do economies recover a lot of talk about inflation and supply chain. Let's hope that both those things temper as we go through 2022. But in terms of where investors are likely to see good returns or in fact deploy their money, and let's hope the two are connected, then I think you'll continue to see what we've seen in, in recent years. I think there's going to be a lot of demand for those alternative asset classes that offer attractive income levels. I think ESG is a trend that's only growing in momentum. And you can see that in the investment company sector uh, in terms of those renewable energy infrastructure names, some of those more specialist mandates, some of the kind of specialist property plays as well. well. I would imagine that's an area that will continue to gain traction. And I think there will be this debate about how well a growth investment approach performs in a higher interest rate environment. So a lot of talk about if and when we do see rising interest rates, and obviously we have started to see that in the UK, and the expectation would be that will be what we'll see from the US going into 2022, how will that impact on the valuations of these high growth companies? In theory, at least, that should act as a headwind. But when you talk to people in that space of the market, you know, our friends at Bailey Gifford, they will tell you they're, they're looking through that. They're not looking at what's going to happen over the next six to nine months. They're very much on a kind of 10-year, 20-year view about those companies that are going to really see disruptive returns. So in other words, very high levels of growth and actually relatively modest rises in interest rates shouldn't really impact that. So I suspect, and it's a slightly boring answer, that I think we're going to see more of the same going into 2022. 
Yes, the great thing about looking ahead at this time of year is, of course, we don't know the significant events that are going to happen. We don't know what they are. Uh, and they'll be the ones that probably have the biggest impact on what actually turns out. But I guess there is an issue around the scale of interest rate rises and whether or not they are sufficient to, if you like, tame inflation is an important one. I mean, just to take one example, we've got all these alternative assets trading on big premiums. And if there is higher interest rates, you would expect that that would have some impact. Although, as it were, the margin between the interest rates and the yields that these trusts are capable of generating is still quite significant. There is a kind of cushion in there. Uh, at least they would argue that. But, uh, you know, history suggests that at some point these premiums on these big alternative assets might start to come back down. Do you think that interest rates alone could do that? No, I think is my short answer to that. I mean, look, we could see premiums on some of the alternative asset classes erode. And, and to be fair, we, we have seen that in 2021. I mean, if you look at some of the premium ratings on the renewable energy infrastructure funds, for instance, they have modified, they have tempered as we've gone through the year. I think, you know, a, a rise in interest rates, a relatively modest rise, I don't think changes the direction of travel for investment in general. Um, I think it would have to kind of get to a point where suddenly bonds in, you know, very kind of mainstream bonds became an attractive asset class again to make the alternative asset class income generating names less attractive. And I don't see how we get there any anytime soon, frankly. Because obviously that has an impact then. The second question I was going to ask was about fundraising. I mean, the fundraising, presumably, as we've said before, the city of London is very good at supply, providing things that people want. But if we do see any kind of significant movement in premiums and so on, well, what are the odds of getting another year with so much uh, issuance in 2022? That's a good question. And as we discussed, it has been an exceptional year. And, you know, you shouldn't expect to see that every year, certainly going forward. I think the kind of two elements, though, that we talked about, so that ongoing retail demand for some of those kind of mainstream names, by and large, I would expect to see that continue in the short to medium term. And I think the other element is the what is the quality likely to be of the new names that are attracted to the space? And I think that's an interesting thing to watch because arguably because of the success that the UK investment company sector has seen in recent years at launching new product and then raising additional capital thereafter, it should in theory attract good mainstream names into the space who will look over their shoulders and think, gosh, we've heard that investment companies are quite difficult to launch, they take a lot of meetings, you raise a relatively modest amount of money and so on and so forth. But actually, if you can prove your investment case and, and, and scale these things up to significant sizes within a few years, they're quite attractive products to have in our stable. So that will be an interesting thing to watch. You know, Are we, are we likely to attract some of the, the large investors, investment managers into the UK space? And when, and when I talk about those, probably some of the big US names will they be tempted to come and have a look at the UK market again? That's a very interesting question, and one of which, of course, none of us knows the answer for sure. But they certainly make a good point there that that does suggest there is scope to build actually a sizable investment trust, even if it takes two or three goes to get there. And that's really the point, I guess. Finally, Simon, are there any sectors where you think would benefit from new investment trusts coming to the market? Are there any sectors which... Um, perhaps look like the current representatives uh, could do with some more competition? Should I put it that way? Gosh. Um, again, on a personal level, and maybe this is again maybe a bit naive, but I would like to see that the sector could support the launch of a mainstream long-only equity fund, maybe an equity income type mandate. So as discussed, we've seen 15 IPOs invariably focused on those alternative names. And there would be some people who would suggest that actually trying to launch a kind of more mainstream investment trust, so investing in publicly listed companies, it just appears to be too difficult now. And obviously, I mentioned Lion Trust, ESG Trust, as one that didn't get away 
2021. I would like to see that trend bucked in 2022. And again, that may be naive, that may be too ambitious, because I still think there is a good story to be told in terms of investment companies and their ability to provide greater dividend certainty with those equity income type mandates. Um, and we haven't seen a launch really in that space for some time. Obviously, there are a number of existing funds that continue to raise a lot of money. So, you know, the City of London Investment Trust and so on and so forth. But, you know, I think we could see another new name maybe this year. Good. Well, let's hope we do. Simon, thank you very much. It's been good fun as always to talk with you. I'll leave you to your New Year celebrations or your polishing off the uh, annual review, whichever it is to priority <laughs> in the Elliott household. Uh, I'd like to thank all our listeners for their support this year. It's been tremendous having you listen to us. The numbers are, keep going up every week, which we're very grateful for. And uh, look forward to uh, more of the same in the new year. So uh, season's greetings to everyone. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.